to be back. I, uh, I just can't believe it has been 14 years. What happened? What happened? That's not fair. Y'all look good. The place looks good. The platform is beautiful. I haven't seen this. Everything looks wonderful. Y'all look wonderful. Uh oh, we've got another southerner, don't we? Oh. Oh, you. Oh. Oh, you. <laughs> All right, I want to minister some things to you this morning that, that is just vitally important for every one of us, no matter if you're a new believer or you've been in this for as long as you could ever remember. Something so important, a journey, I call it, that we all have to take, and yet the pews are filled with people. In fact, I'll be truthful with you, the pulpits are full of people who have never taken this journey. And when we don't take this journey, we will never be able to receive the promises of God to the extent that he wants us to. We may have a, an occasional victory here and there, but until we take this journey, we're really never going to know the principles to apply that will make us have victory every single time. So it's all important. It's not a missionary journey, although I think they are important. But without this journey, a missionary journey might not succeed. I call this the 18-inch journey. It's the journey you have to take from your head to your heart. You see, the Bible tells us it's with the heart man believes. It's not with the head. We don't believe with our minds. And so often, and I'm speaking from experience, so I'm not pointing any fingers. Fingers go both ways. I had to learn this myself after 20 years of ministry, <laughs> that I had done this, that I had been in sitting in church for so long, and I believed what was preached. But my behavior didn't line up with my belief because I believed it in my head. And so when I ran into a crisis, I didn't have anything in my heart to put me over. And if the word is not implanted in your heart, you're not going to make it. Your head was designed, your mind, your mental faculties was designed to stop in crisis. Have you ever watched one of those movies where somebody's chasing a lady and she's going, and nothing's coming out? It's because this shuts off. I've actually had that happen when I was 16. I had somebody break into my house. My window was real high above my bed, and he was coming in through the window, and I was going, because your head shuts off. God designed us to live out of our heart, not out of our head. So if we believe God in our mind, I believe it just that way. I believe God heals. I believe he prospers. I believe he delivers. I believe, well, not righteous, but for other people. You know, um, that's when we can tell the difference between somebody who really believes it in their heart is when they hit crisis and they turn to not what the circumstances say, not what the doctor says, not what your checkbook says, but what my heart is saying, what the word of God that has been implanted in my heart says to me. Let me give you this illustration. Um, Norman Vincent Peale, you probably maybe not even know who he is. <laughs> He's got several books out. He wrote a book um, called um, something about the imagination. I don't remember the name of it. Um, in the 19, it was in 1950. He wrote a book called Something Imaginative, The Power of Your Imagination. I think that's what it is. The last few pages of that book has a story in it that just perfectly describes what I'm talking about. 
So he said he, he and his wife were in Hong Kong shopping in the 50s, early 50s, and she was inside the stores and he wasn't. <laughs> Typical man. He was walking the streets looking in the windows, you know, enjoying himself, looking at the city, the different culture and all while she was in shopping. But he came upon this shop that stopped him in his tracks. It was a tattoo parlor. Back then, tattoo parlors were rare. Tattoos were rare. <laughs> I don't know how they do up here, but um, it's flipped now. If you don't have a tattoo, it's rare. So he, he came upon this tattoo parlor, and he was just amazed by all of the different things that people would put on their bodies permanently. He said there were patriotic symbols, flags, you know, different things like that. There were nautical things, anchors, and then, of course, there was the mom, and hearts, different things, and it got worse from there. But he finally came upon one tattoo that compelled him to go inside and talk to the owner of the store. When he got inside that store, he asked the owner, who was Chinese and spoke very broken English, he said, does anyone put this tattoo on their bodies? And he said, oh, many. That tattoo said, born to lose. And Norman Vincent Peale could not believe that somebody would actually put that on their body. And he stood there with his mouth gaping, staring at the owner. And this Chinese man said in his broken English, tattoo on mind before tattoo on body. And I said, now that is something very profound, isn't it? So I'm going to talk to you about tattoos today. Aren't you glad I told you that story before I announced my title? Tattoos. Actually, it's tattoo removal is my title. So we all have tattoos, every single one of us, and I'm going to prove it to you through this meeting today. We all have tattoos. We may want to deny it, say we came unscathed from all the horrible stuff that goes on in the world, but it's not true. We all have them. We might not have the same tattoo. Your tattoo may not say what mine does, but we all have tattoos, things that we have to fight. Things that are on our mind, that are imprinted on our mind, maybe from childhood, or maybe you had a beautiful, wonderful childhood, but when you got out in the real world, it just ate your lunch, and it was adults that got you and put tattoos on your mind. See, I grew up in an alcoholic home with a rageaholic mother. We had guns put to our heads. We were beaten. We ran away from home and went to the police, and the police brought us home. That was before they had any protection for kids. They'd bring us home going, well, what do you want me to do with her? Well, when we got home, guess what? We got beat. <laughs> Don't go to the police again. You know, that kind of stuff where my mother told me that we, you know, face to face, I should have never had kids. And I said, you should have never had kids. I agree with you. She said, well, you wouldn't have been born. I said, that would have been good. <laughs> Please, you should have never had children. You were an unfit mother unfit parents. So I grew up with tattoos saying, you were never wanted, you were never loved. Never heard my mother or father say, I love you in my life. Never loved, never lovable. You're a failure. You didn't belong here. You'll never make it. Why try? Imprinted on my brain from birth. In fact, my mother told me this. I didn't figure this one out until my daughter was about five and she was visiting me, playing with my daughter, talking about how shy I was all of my life. And she said, um, when I was born, she wanted a boy really bad because she had two girls already. She wanted a boy. So when I was born and the doctor said I was a girl, she said, get her out of here. And she didn't see me 
until she got in the car five days later to go home and they put her in my hands. She refused to see me and I thought, I wonder if that's where that spirit of rejection started. <laughs> I, it solved so many problems for me. I said, oh, okay, I get it now. Uh, you know, but anyway, that, that was imprinted on me. All that rejection of I never wanted you, I wanted that boy. And of course she treated that boy so bad that we despised the boy. I mean, she was just like goo-goo over him. A lot of mothers are that way with their boys, I find. But anyway, off of that subject. My tattoo said worthless. My tattoo said unwanted. My tattoo said unloved, unlovable, failure, why try? That's all it said. Now your tattoo may not say anything like that, but it has the same effect. It has the exact same effect, whatever your tattoo says. But you know what? We don't have to live with those tattoos. We don't have to live with them. I'll tell you what, this started in the Garden of Eden. Nothing new. And let me show you what I mean by that. You know, sometimes we think that most people don't struggle like we do. We know ourselves. We know what we think. We're so familiar with what we think and what we've done that we only see everybody else in church with their happy faces and their smiles and their pretty dresses or clothes. And we think their lives are perfect and they never struggle, especially those people in the ministry, right? That nobody ever struggles with tattoos or thoughts or issues. But it's not true. When I show you this from the garden, you're going to see that every human being is on the same playing field. I think that's important. Because if the devil can make us think that we're different, that we're defective, that the word doesn't work for us, we're going to try. But if we see that it is the exact same tact tactic that he uses with every person, then we don't have to hide. We have to pretend. We just have to defeat him. That's all. I can know that you might have a happy smile today, but you could be going through hell, and I am not going to judge you because I've been through hell too. And so this is what happened. When Eve was in the garden... The serpent came to her, and he said to her, which, you know, I just still go back to, why were you talking to a snake anyway? But, okay, so let's just say of all animals and reptiles, everybody talked. So let's just say they did. So that wasn't that odd. But um, when she was in the garden and the snake came to her, he said these things to her. Did God say, did God really say? Well, number one, that's the same tactic he uses to you. Did God really say Everybody could be healed. Did God really say everybody could prosper? He does it. It's the same trick. So when you hear those words, did God really say, just say, ah, the devil. <laughs> so he said to her, did God really say that if you don't touch or eat, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of this fruit, that you would be like God knowing good and evil. He questioned what God said to begin with. Then he added something to what God said. He said, don't touch it or eat it. Now, my own personal opinion, I have no scripture for this, but I just feel like I'm right. <laughs> my personal opinion is, if he can prove to us that God lied to us, then he pits us against God. Has that, is that not like religion personified? So he said to Eve, if you don't touch it and you don't eat it, and I believe with all my heart he began touching it just to prove to her he wasn't going to die, slithering all over that fruit. 
And the first thing she thought was, God lied to me. He didn't die. And when she thought that, he had an inroad. The door was open. Then he told her this, you'll be like God. She was already like God, made in his likeness and his image. So he was offering her something she already possessed. However, he is wicked. You know what the word wicked means? It's actually from an old English word that we get the word wick. Wicks that are used in candle are strings that are twisted. And so he's wicked. He's twisted and he'll try to twist your thinking. So what he did is he slyly came in there and proved to Eve that God had lied to her that she could touch that fruit and eat it and it wouldn't bother her at all. Then he told her there's an advantage to touching it because you'll be like God. Which also told her that God was withholding something from her. Wisdom. Knowledge. Boy, he pitted her against him in such a huge way. He pitted her against God. Did that make sense? In such a huge way, but it's all implied here. But man, if you're standing there looking and observing and hearing all of this, it's just easy to interpret what he did to her. And so, he said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, which she was already like God. Now, he twisted her thinking that to think that God was against her. He lied to her, number one. He's withholding stuff from her. He really doesn't have her best interest at heart. If you withhold information from somebody, that's not a friend who she knew God had been her friend up until that point. When she took the bait, all of these things that he did to her, when she took the bait and believed what he said, at that moment, identity theft was born. And he began to work on all of humanity to steal our identity, who we really are in God. We are already made in the likeness and image of God. All she had to do was ask God, what is good and evil? He came and walked and talked with her every single day. I'm sure she asked some questions. She's a female. <laughs> My husband calls me an interrogator. I'm proud of it. He thinks it's horrible. <laughs> I should go to the work, work for the CIA or somebody because I know how to ask questions. And I'll get down to what I want. <laughs> he comes home and I say, so how's the church going? How's the pastor? Where's their kids? Are they married yet? You know, and we go on. He's like, can I just put my briefcase away? That's what he asked me. Can I first put my briefcase? Why? I'll follow him into his office asking questions. <laughs> What's your issues? <laughs> so... This is what the devil will do. He'll twist what God said. He'll twist your thinking into thinking less of yourself because that's what he did to Eve. You're less than like God. He'll always do this to us. His same tactics that worked in the garden and he thinks they'll work with all of us. And sometimes they do. When we're unaware of it, they do. So identity theft was born right there in the garden. It wasn't a new, it isn't a new thing that came with, you know, the internet, credit cards, and, you know, identity theft like that. No, no, no. It's the oldest thing that has ever happened to humanity. And so the devil's going to ask you, did God say? He'll always do that. And you know what? He did the same thing to Jesus. Exactly the same thing to Jesus. Jesus wasn't exempt from all of the things that we go through or... Adam and Eve went through. 
He walked through this world as a man, a human being, just like you and I. He was tempted, the Bible says, just like you and I are. The great thing is he didn't fall to temptation. Do you remember at the Jordan River when John the Baptist baptized Jesus and the skies opened up and God said, this is my beloved son? You remember that scripture? Well, the first thing that happened after the baptism was the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to fast. And when he got in the wilderness, guess who showed up? And guess what he did? If you're the son of God, attacked his identity. Well, excuse me, but were you back there at the river when the sky opened and God said, you are my son? Hello? This wasn't a day or two later when the devil was taking his very identity that God just confirmed to Jesus and everybody that was there. And he said three times, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, and it just didn't work. Jesus came back with, it is written. He came back with what God said, not yeah, I wonder. I mean, that's a pretty lofty calling, isn't it? I mean, who do I think I am? And after a few days of getting hungry, he probably was a little weaker, right? But he never failed. He never uh, took the bait that Satan gave the same exact bait. Do you see that? And he's going to use that same exact tactic on you. That's why I know we all have tattoos. Because we're in this earth... And we have listened to his, if you are, whatever. Did God really say? Every one of us face that stuff. Not to mention the sweet people that are around us. Like our parents that maybe said you weren't wanted and you're a failure, you'll never make. Maybe your teacher said you're just not smart enough to go to college. Go to work at McDonald's. Maybe a friend has ragged on you so much. I think I'd change friends. (laughs) You know, co-workers, it can happen anywhere. It can happen with strangers where they say things that those words lodge in our heart and they begin to taunt us and haunt us and then they are worked right into a tattoo where that's what I believe. That's really the the truth about my life. And so we were all born to win. We've just been conditioned to lose. That's all. So we can do something about it. I have a friend who grew up at the circus. His mom and dad worked and lived at the circus. Wild, huh? That'd be fun for a day or two, a month maybe. But he grew up there at the circus. And so I had heard this story probably 30, I don't know, maybe 40 years ago, and I thought it was a great story. But I am an interrogator, remember? And I can't stand it if I don't know if something's really true. I'm not going to say it if it's sort of a good story. So I I called my friend and told him, I said, I have heard this story for so long and everybody says it's a true story, but you lived on the circus. So I want to ask you if it's true or not, because I'll never say it if it's not. And I'm going to preach it next Sunday if it is. (laughs) So he, I asked him my question. He said, it's true, but we don't know why it works. It is true. So this is the story. When they train a young elephant, you know, when elephants are born, they weigh anywhere from three to 600 pounds. How would you like to give birth to that? You thought a 10-pounder was bad. (laughs) Wow. Uh, So they weigh that much when they're born. So when they're a young elephant, the uh, trainer takes a rope and ties it around their leg and secures that rope so that the elephant can't get away. 
and young and energetic as he is, he tugs and he pulls and he tugs and he pulls every single day of his life. Until one day, he comes to believe that the restraint is more powerful than he is and he totally gives up. And then when that elephant grows into adulthood, it weighs anywhere from 6,000 pounds up, depending upon what kind of elephant it is. They put the same rope on that elephant that they had on him when he was 600 pounds, and that elephant never tries to break free because he's been conditioned to believe that that restraint is more powerful than he is. Truth of the matter is he could sneeze and probably break it, but he doesn't try. And so when we grow up, whether it's from childhood or adulthood, it doesn't matter. When we're uh, around tattoos and people who put tattoos on us and we have these images of ourselves in our head and we've been conditioned to believe that we should have never been born because we're not loved because whatever your situation is. We don't even try to fight it. Sometimes we can sit in church. Oh, way too often we sit in church and we will amen shake our heads, take notes, believe it, until we get in that car all by ourselves and we go home to our house. And we remember, oh yeah, that's who I am. That was a good message. But we really don't internalize it and take it because the tattoos and the restraints are screaming at us. I believe that for somebody else. Just not for me. Because I know me. I know I sinned yesterday, and I know what I think. I know my thinking is thinking. <laughs> and I know God wouldn't do that kind of stuff for me because of my stinking thinking. And so what we do is we interpret our Christianity as performance-driven. God will do for us if we're good enough, you know, if we don't sin, if we aren't who we really are if we don't have those thoughts. So everything we do is about our performance, which if you read the New Testament, you will see performance has nothing to do with it. Read Ephesians. Go home and read Ephesians. This is not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel. It doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter how bad I was or how bad I am. You may not believe this, but I could be bad today. God's love just never changes for me. Never changes because he doesn't change. He's consistent. Now, let me tell you this. He may not be pleased with me, but his love will never falter. His promise will always be sure to me the moment I turn to it. And same for you. He will love you no matter what you do. And I'm not promoting that you go out and do weird stuff. My point is, your Christianity and God doing things for you has nothing to do with your performance. Zip. Nothing. That's so huge. So here I grew up in this horrible, destructive home with violence. I was about 14, 15, I don't know, 13 years old, just minding my own business one day, walking down the sidewalk from the back of our house to the front, and a bullet went... I heard it, and I felt the wind of the bullet go by me, and it lodged into the brick wall behind me. There were guns in our houses. Now, I own guns, but I respect them, and I do the right thing with them. I don't chase my children with them. <laughs> or my husband, either. 
<laughs> or my neighbors, or you know, you get the picture. Um, very much a proponent of the Second Amendment, so uh, let's don't go there. It's the person handling them, obviously. Uh, when you're an alcoholic, you don't need to be messing with a gun. When I was 14 years old, I remember walking into my house and my dad had my mother on the ground. Now, these two people were very hurt, abused people themselves. I didn't get that as a kid. All I knew was I hated them because of what they did to us. In my heart of hearts, I knew it wasn't right for somebody to beat on kids. Until, you know, you slap them and they hit the wall and fall down unconscious. That's just not normal. <laughs> so you have this controversy on the inside of you that I love and I hate you both. But when you're a kid, you don't see truth. You know, you just see things from such a weird perspective. Sometimes, maybe it's the way you want to see it. I don't know. But when I was 14, I walked into the house and I saw my dad holding my mother down with a gun to her temple. And I walked in and he looked up at me and we caught eyes. And was I traumatized by that? No. I've been planning that for a long time. So I looked at my dad and I said, how can we get away with this? That's how much hate I had for her. I had planned her murder for so long. My sisters and I used to sit at the kitchen table and say, maybe we could get some LSD and put it in her coffee, and she would go nuts. <laughs> you know, that's good, that's good, that put her away. We planned her death because we hated her so much. And so, when you have that kind of stuff on the inside of you, something needs to happen. <laughs> you know, it doesn't just go away. I moved out at 17 thinking, I'm gonna leave all that trash there. What I didn't know was that trash was on the inside of me by then. It had grown on the inside of me and murder and hate and revenge and, and violence lived in me. That shocked me when I got out and I still wanted to kill my mom. I kept thinking, I packed my bags and somebody snuck in the bag. I thought I was leaving it there with her, but it doesn't. You see, it gets on the inside of us and then it follows us wherever we go. So I've been conditioned to violence and to all of this kind of um, hurt and uh, woundedness. But what the Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So what we've got here is we've got tattoos that have been branded on us, either from childhood or life in general, that begin to dominate our thinking. They drop down into our heart and it fights against God's word. God says this, I believe it, just not for me, because I know as a young believer, I was born again and I still wanted to murder my mother because it never got out of me. I didn't know how to get rid of it. It doesn't disappear. And you know, I just didn't feel comfortable going to the pastor and saying, I was on staff, the youth minister. I didn't feel comfortable going to him and saying, I want to kill my mom. What do you think I'd do about that? <laughs> I mean, seriously, you think I ought to do it or, I mean, you just don't go to counseling with stuff like that. It's too shameful, right? Because the pastor's so holy and who would judge me? Everybody would judge me. So what you do is suppress it, hide it, pretend it doesn't exist. But you know what? It never goes away. Those tattoos are on you until God's word takes them off. And so... 
Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinketh, so is he. So if you think you're a murderer, it's just going to be in you. If you think you hate somebody, if you think you're unlovable, whatever the deal is, it is on the inside of you and it has to be removed. It has to be changed. And I'm going to give you a way to do that. Kim, what time did we start? You don't know? Good. I don't know either. Let's start right now. (laughs) Remember, I'm a woman. I talk too much. Okay, if you have to leave, go ahead. I don't know what time I got started, so I don't know how long I've been going. So. I still couldn't hear that, so I'm just going to ignore it. Okay, so where were we? Remember when Moses sent the 12 spies into the, the promised land and gave them instructions what to do? Ten of them came back with a report of, we can't. We're grasshoppers in their eyes. Well, you know, inquisitive me. I want to say, how did you know they saw you as grasshoppers? Did you tap somebody on the soldier and go, what do I look like to you? (laughs) And he said, a grasshopper, you know, because I'm a giant. That is not what happened. In fact, the scripture tells us exactly what happened. Because they said this, we were grasshoppers in their eyes and in our own eyes. Duh. Okay, let's reverse that. We were grasshoppers in our eyes, so we must. The tattoo says we must be grasshoppers to them, right? What does that say? I'm insignificant. I'm little. I I need to be squashed under his feet. I can't do this. I can't. I can't. I can't. I hate that word. I hate that word. I can't. There is a way no matter what. We should never say I can't. And I may not have the way, but I serve a God who lives inside of me, who knows. In fact, he is the way. (laughs) So, I can't is what they came back saying. Stronghold. Tattoo of the mind. They had a slave mentality, and they never got rid of it. Except for the two who chose to believe God. I mean, think about it. Here we've got a whole nation of people who are miraculously delivered, parts the Red Sea, they get fed uh, manna from heaven and quail, they get water from a rock, and only two people believe that, wow, God could do anything. The rest of them believe the bad report that we're grasshoppers. I know I am. They know I am. I'm not going back there. They'll just squash me like a bug. So those guys got to die in their unbelief. But the two who believed possessed what God said, regardless of the fact that they had grown up as slaves. They didn't have weapons to fight. They weren't warriors, but they didn't need to be. God knew how to fight. God was going to do this for them. And so, I call it a tattoo. The Bible calls it a stronghold. I just don't use that word stronghold very much, so I don't like to use words that are just antiquated or or meaningless in our current uh, vernacular. So I like to use the word tattoo because we all know what those are, right? We all know what tattoos are. We all know that they can't be removed without leaving a scar, don't we? I saw a girl in the airport the other day that had a scar from here to here because she had her tattoo removed. Well, I thought it was prettier than the tattoo, actually. But it was still a scar. The wonderful thing about the Word of God is it leaves no scar. It leaves no scar. I can talk about the life that I used to live without any emotion in it because there's no scar. I can talk about it knowing that two people that raised me were very hurt, very unsafe, very um, 
incapable of doing anything but what they had, had done to them. It doesn't bother me. I understand that. Now, it bothered me then. <laughs> yeah, it bothered me then, but I wasn't even saved. I didn't know anything about God. So the Word of God can take any situation that you've had, and He can remove it from you and never leave a scar. Is that not wonderful? I talk about my life sometimes, and I think I'm telling a story about somebody else's life. It's that far removed from me, and yet I really am. That person's dead and gone. It is somebody else. I'm not that same person. So we got to get into how do you remove a tattoo, right? Don't leave me hanging here. Is that what you're saying? Strongholds according to the Word of God. If you'll look in oh, different you know, dictionaries, Thayer's Dictionary of New Testament Word calls strongholds arguments. Arguments, isn't that perfect? It describes just what would happen to us when we sit and hear how wonderful, uh, the wonderful things that God has promised us, and yet when we get home, we think about why we can't do it. An argument. It's an argument against what God said you could do, what God said you could be, what he said you could have. So a stronghold, a tattoo, argues with the word of God every time. I believe it for them, but not for me, because I did this or I am that. Whatever it says to you, whatever that tattoo screams to you. But what if you could undo the damage that all those tattoos caused? What if you could reverse what the conditioning has caused you to believe about restraints? What if we could remove those restraints forever? And we could recover the true freedom that God designed us to live in. Would you do anything for that? Would you do anything for that? We don't have to do anything much. Receive it and act upon what we're about to talk about. Because it's the only way. That 18-inch journey is going to go the Word of God from believing it in your head and it lodging in your heart. It has to lodge in your heart. I remember working out at Kenneth Copeland Ministries with Brownie when I was five. <laughs> whatever year, whatever year that was, <laughs> 1776, 19, whatever it was. I was five, no matter what year it was. I remember sitting at my desk, and I had heard the word of prosperity preached for probably four, three to four years by then. This was in the early 70s. I mean, Kenneth was, Copeland was breaking ground that was so hard it was unreal. 1972, I believe I heard it the first time, that God wanted us all to prosper. And, and so um, I had heard it from 72 to 76, or maybe 73, something like that. I had heard it for years. And I was sitting at my desk working on the computer, and all of a sudden I went, oh, my gosh, I'm prosperous, out loud. It burst out of me, and all the ladies went, she's from California. <laughs> I know they did. I know they did. They still say it. <laughs> we were on vacation. Okay, I've been hanging in Texas for 36 years. Is that not long enough? <laughs> and we go on vacation. We do this motorcycle trip every year with the Copelands and the Savelle there this time, and Kenneth's mosquito zapper thing wasn't working. And I made, you know, I asked, 
so is it not working? And he goes, did I not just say it wasn't working? And, and Jerry said, she's from California. And I thought, <laughs> I'm going on 40 years and I can't outlive that. She's from California. I wanted to go, and you're from Louisiana. I didn't. I was very respectful. I took it with broad shoulders. It's still on my shoulders. No. <laughs> anyway. Where was I? Strongholds, that's right. Arguments. Being from California, what did that have to do with anything? Um, oh, we could get free. What did that have to do with California? All right, let's skip, 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 skip. Have you ever been to an amusement park? You have. Have you ever been in front of those mirrors that make you look real funny? And distorted. There's one mirror that we all look real skinny in front of. And if, if you've never been really skinny in your life, you huddle around that one, right? We're all crowded around the real skinny one. Everybody's shoving you out of the way trying to get in front of it. I want to see what I look like skinny. <laughs> and then there's the mirror that um, in the middle you're real wide and then your neck and your head and your feet are all skinny and long. You know, they're all distorted. And so everybody's crowded around, mostly kids, but everybody's crowded around those um, amusement park mirrors and they're just crying their eyes out. Man, look what I look like, oh my gosh. Right? Of course not. They're laughing hysterically. They don't look at this distorted image and begin to cry because they don't believe it, right? It's not normal, right? They're laughing. They're shoving each other. Let me in front of it. I want to see and laughing and laughing, right? That's exactly what we can do with those tattoos and the restraints because they're not real. They are not any more real than those mirrors are. What's happened is those tattoos have distorted your thinking. The conditioning that says you'll never break free from that. You'll live with that to the day you die. It's restraining you. It's distorting your whole thinking. It does exactly what those mirrors do. The difference is we don't laugh at them. We cry, right? And bellyache and whine. It was my lot in life. And you know what? I don't mean at all in any way to minimize the hurt or the victimization that anybody has gone through. I've been a victim. I've been through all of that. You know, I've had every kind of abuse you could imagine. So I'm not minimizing it. It's real. And it doesn't go away by itself. You know, I went to a church a few years back, and they would get up on the platform and say, just get over it. Made me want to call their eyes out. I left the church. You don't just get over it. How about if we call all cancer people up and look at them and go, just get over it. How insensitive and stupid is that? You can't anymore get rid of a tattoo by being screamed at to just get over it. And you could a disease. Some people are uncomfortable with emotional issues. You know, they haven't been through them. All right. Like they've come out unscathed. That's not true. We've all been through them. Some people just don't want to deal with them because they don't know how or they're uncomfortable with it. But so we can look in that in the mirror at an amusement park and we can laugh hysterically because we know it's not real. It's not real because we look in a mirror every day of our lives and we see what is real. If you're female, you look in a mirror multiple times a day, right? You even carry a portable one in your purse so that you can check yourself out, right, during the day. 
and then you know that that rearview mirror in your car was built for us, <laughs> right? At the stop sign. <laughs> My daughter puts her makeup on the, in the car, and I'm just like, where did you ever learn something so crazy? And she goes, well, I do it at the stop sign, and I'm like, oh, well, thank God for that. <laughs> I mean, I was hoping that much. So she believes that mirror was put there for her. I bought her little compact. She doesn't carry them. My point is this. We see ourselves in a real mirror every day of our lives. So we know what we look like physically. When we stand in front of that distorted mirror, we laugh because that's not us. What's the function of a mirror? To reflect. Now, have you ever stood in the mirror and seen someone else? Anybody in here stood in front of a mirror and seen someone else besides your mother? That's when you break them. Oh my God, I even have my mother's knees. How did that happen? Don't look. So, excluding your mother, did you ever look in the mirror and see somebody else? No. Why? There's one function. That's the only thing it can do, and that's reflect what's right in front of it, right? That's all it can do. One function. So we grow up every day looking in a mirror, knowing what we look like. We might not like what we see. And that's when the mirror starts to speak to you, right? When I get out of bed in the morning, you may be like me. I grope out of the bed this way. My husband, his eyes wake, I mean, open up just that fast. At five in the morning, the um, you know obscene hours, open his eyes and he's awake, but not me. You just stay away from me. I used to say to him, I've quit saying this now because I realized I was only hurting myself. I used to say, God doesn't even talk to me for thirty minutes after I get up. <laughs> He's smarter than you, Dennis. Dennis would come over to me, and I'd be sound asleep, and he'd start kissing me. Oh, wake up, wake up, wake up, kissing me. And I'm like, you're putting your life in your hands. I'm telling you, back off. And he did. He, he knows better. Don't even do that. But I'm better. It doesn't take me 30 minutes, and I let God talk to me anytime he wants to talk. He can even wake me up now. But I get up in the morning, and I have, you know, this... Can't even open my eyes to the light. It's so abusive. And, and so I grope over to the coffee pot, you know, all the way to the kitchen from the bedroom. There, and I punch the button. And when I get there, I brave it and open one eye. I'm like, oh, it's just what I thought. It's so light out here. So I turn around and I go back into the bathroom and I look in the mirror. And by then, I'm able to keep that eye open for a little while. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> what happened in the night? Sometimes I look like I was surfing USA because my hair goes into a big wave and I'm like, what was I doing all night? Sometimes I have a peacock. And I think, you know how some people, I don't know, they have to do this here. In America, people are crazy about their dogs and their pets. And so they'll get a pet and it tears up their house. And instead of killing the dog and burying it in the backyard where it belongs, they will get a camera and videotape and see, you know, and then take it to a dog doctor or something and then they analyze it and they fix it crazy one time in my house you wreck something and you're out see Dennis is the mercy side of our ministry I'm the violent take it by force don't even mess with me so 
thought about, I don't want to do that with my dog. My dog shivers when she sees me. <laughs> don't mess the house up. But I've thought about getting one of those cameras and seeing what I do in the night. Because when I get out of bed, where have I been? What happened? And so the, when I look in the mirror in the morning, I Ooh! do something. The mirror begins to speak to me and says, get the mousse, get the shampoo, get the blow dryer, get the flat iron, get the curling iron, get the gel, and anything else you got in the house. You need help. Work on the hair. This is amazing to me. You shampoo your hair to get it clean. And then you use a bunch of products to get it dirty so it'll do what you want. We're weird. Oh, women are weird. So the mirror speaks to me and says, do something with the hair. And I obey it gladly because it's a freak show, you know. Some people I know would spray it and go out like that because the wave is in. The peacock is in. They'd even spray it different colors. Not me. Call me conservative, old-fashioned, I don't even care. So I go to work when the mirror says something, right? It says, do something with the dark circles under your eyes because they're not very attractive. And so I do. We have something that we call concealer, right? That's like, hide it. <laughs> we put the concealer on the dark eyes. This is where we really get weird, ladies. We hide the dark circles under our eyes and then we put dark circles above our eyes. <laughs> now, how logical is that? Don't tell the men. They already know we're nuts. So then we take our concealer and we cover up the red around here. And we take our blush and put red right here. <laughs> You're weird. And I've come up with an idea. I just have, you know, remember it. I never say can't because I believe it can be done. I'm going to invent drag and drop it. Take the red here, drag it, drop it. I just need a mouse to work with my mirror and I'm going to drag that dark circle above. Save on all kinds of makeup, right? Drag and drop it for women only. Would you buy it? See, I knew it. It's $50. You still buy it? We're weird. The point that I'm trying to make to you is we do take instructions from the mirror. Not one of you came in here looking so lovely by just getting out of bed and crawling out of the house, right? It's true. And thank God for that, right? Amen. We all love it. We all buy into it. And so, where'd we go? So, the reason you can look in your mirror, in the, in the amusement park mirrors and laugh is because you've looked into a mirror a thousand, two thousand, three thousand times and you know what you look like. So when you look into the mirror, the Bible says that this is a mirror. James calls the Bible a mirror. So when you look in the mirror, who do you see? Okay, let's go back a few steps. When you look at your mirror at home, what does it do? It reflects. It reflects. Who do you see when you look in the mirror? Myself. Myself. So if James said, this is a mirror, when I look into it, what does it do? It reflects. Who do I see? I see myself. That's tripping you up, isn't it? Because you want to say Jesus. But you never looked in that mirror at home and saw Jesus, did you? Mm -mm. It's not what a mirror can do. It doesn't reflect somebody else. James says this is a mirror. 
And when you look into it, it's reflecting who you are, who you really are. This is the true mirror, not the tattoo and the conditioning. This is who you are. So let's look at James and remember what he says. Turn to James chapter 1. Is this the first scripture we read? No, it's the second. Wow. <laughs> but you've learned something, right? Yes. James chapter 1, verse 23 to 25, and I think I just did my water all over me. Okay, it says this. I'm reading from the New Living. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the word of God, the law of liberty, and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. So James just told us that the word of God, the perfect law of liberty, is a mirror that reflects our own image. And if we'll look into it in three, and do three things, he said, we will be blessed. We will change into the very image that we're looking at. So this is what he said. Three things we have to do. He said you have to look intently. Well, first of all, you have to look, all right? That does not mean you come to church on Sunday and listen. James didn't say listen intently. He said look. That means you have to do it. Don't you think that you can rely on what your pastor is going to share with you every Sunday and it's going to change your tattoos? You've got to do more than that. But it's not hard. It's so easy. But you have to look. Now, I'm not advocating don't come and hear the pastor Sunday. No, because he's got revelation for you. But you look every day. Every day. He said intently. What does it mean to look intently? To me, to look intently means to look on purpose. Not accidentally. Not casually. Anybody strolling along and looks at the word of God casually is going to remain the way he is forever. And if we just come in on Sunday, that's looking casually. I'm sorry. God expects something out of you. Brother Hagin used to say, you've got to give God something to work with. You have to give him something to work with. That means you have to dig into the word. Well, I don't know how to do a sermon. You're not looking for a sermon. Right? Mm -mm. You have to get into the word intently with purpose. So what does that mean? How does that look? How does that reflect in our life? So I'm looking at the Word in the morning. I get up and I'm going to do my daily devotional. I'm not against the Bibles that give you a little bit from the Old Testament, a little from the New Testament, a little from Psalms and Proverbs that'll get you through the Bible in a year. I've done them. They're fine. But we're not in a race. We don't have a goal here. Quantity is not what we're after. We're after quality here. I'm looking for tattoo removal. A double-edged sword that's going to cut that tattoo out of me and never leave a scar. So I am not trying to go somewhere through this Bible. I'm not against it. Unless you're, all your tattoos are gone, then you can do it. My point is this. James didn't say to race through the Bible in a year. <laughs> he said, look in the mirror with purpose. 
And so every one of you, I appreciate what Brownie said earlier. Uh, she might have prayed this or said this. Um, and when she said, every one of us have got something we've come here to believe God for. And that's what I pray every time I come in. Because if you don't have stuff you're working on, it isn't going to get fixed. No matter how long you've been in this. I'm working on stuff right now. Been in it 40 years, 42 years. But it's like God ever hones us into a better person, somebody who understands more, somebody who removes more of the tattoo or the conditioning. We're never on this earth going to quit doing this. It'll just be more and more refined. That's all. So if you don't have something that you're dealing with right now in your life that you can't say, I need to fix my stinking attitude, or I need to work on my finances, or I don't really believe God can heal this in my body, whatever it is, or, you know, the uh, I'm not good enough, the performance attitude, whatever it is, you've got to have something that you could say, if I could say, what are you working on, Kim, she could tell me. Now, limit it to three, okay? <laughs> Because if we, if we tackle it all, we're not going to get it done. You have to go honing in on one thing. So, let's just say I'm dealing with that unloved feeling that I grew up with. And so, I'm in the Bible, and I want to read a little bit from the Old Testament, a little bit from the New Testament, a little bit from Psalms and Proverbs, so that I can get done and go to work, right? That's not what I'm looking for. No, I'm looking for a sword that's going to remove that tattoo that said, you are unloved. You are not worthy to be loved. There's nothing lovely about you. Boy, does that make you pull away from people. So I am looking intently for that sword. I need the scalpel of God's word to get that out of me. I need the scalpel of God's word to remove that spirit of murder in me because I can't do it. I don't know how. So when I get into the Word, it's not how much I'm going to read. But I'm looking like an FBI agent or CIA. I need the clue, the tool. I need the wisdom. I need the Word. I need that scalpel that's going to cut this out of me. So I get into the Word, and instead of saying I'm going to read through the Bible this year, I say I'm going to get rid of that tattoo this year. It's going. And the violent take it by force. Someone's going down and it's not me. We need to get a little testy with the devil. You know, until you get really mad at where you're at, you're never going to move. Get mad at what he's stolen from you. If you've lived 30 years under this, get mad at that. And saying, I'm not living one more year with this attitude or with this issue. I'm going after it like a bulldog. So I get in the Word and I open it up and it says, Beloved. Why go any further? I don't believe it. That's the issue I'm dealing with. Why should I go any further? What's the point? If I can't believe what I'm reading. And so I stop and I say, God called me beloved. They called me unlovable. But God is God. He's the creator of all the world. He called me beloved. He loves me. 
Jesus called me acceptable. They called me unacceptable. Who am I going to believe? Am I going to live under their condemning forever? Or am I going to say, God, I don't care what they say. I'm going to believe you. I love what Jesus said in the New Living Translation in John 541. He said, your approval or disapproval means nothing to me. And you know what? When I read that, I said, that's my new motto. I don't care what people think. I'm smart enough to know that there's a lot of people that just aren't going to like me. Oh, well, to know me is to love me, right? (laughs) It really doesn't matter to me. You know why? People are so fickle that today I can make them so mad and tomorrow be their best friend. Or usually it's vice versa. I could be their best friend today and tomorrow they're not going to like me because my behavior didn't line up with what they approve of. Isn't that the truth? I said something they don't approve of. I did something they don't approve of. I wore something they didn't approve of. So, take Jesus' attitude. That's not to say we shun them and we're rude to them. It's just I'm unscathed by their words and their attitude. As long as I can say, God, are we okay? Everything good between me and you? Is this outfit okay with you? Is what I said okay with you? I don't care what they think. I really don't. And that took years to get because I was so um, paralyzed by what people thought and did. I did whatever they wanted. It was, it's called a people pleaser. But you know what? You can't please everybody. So let's not try. Let's just be pleasing to God. So when I read Beloved, this is what I do. I'm working on something here. I'm working on that tattoo that says unloved, unlovable, worthless, not wanted, should have never been born. And I start to read Beloved. And when I do my walking in the morning, I walk around the neighborhood, I talk to myself and to God. And my neighbors say, there she goes again. Look at that lady, crazy lady talking, because I'm just walking and talking. I am beloved of God. He loves me more than anybody else because he said I'm highly favored. He said he set me at the right hand of God. I'm sitting next to the creator because he likes me best. Now, he said that about you too, but I believe it. So I just go on and I begin to rehearse the scriptures that I know even though I don't feel like it, even though I may not still believe it. But you know what? When it comes out of your mouth and it begins to lodge in your heart, it goes from here, from what you know, down into here, which is what we're after, that 18-inch journey. When you begin to talk it out loud is when it really begins to change for you because the gate to your heart is in your eyes and your ears. That's how we get to our hearts. So we read what God says about us, and it goes into our heart. We hear with our own words because we believe us more than anybody in the whole wide world, don't we? I do. (laughs) We all do. And so we say it so we can hear it. And saying it and seeing it puts those things into our eye gate and our ear gate, and it goes into our heart. And that's what we're after. When it gets to your heart, it'll explode out of you like it did when I was working at KCM and went, I'm prosperous. That's how I got to California. (laughs) I remember now. I'm prosperous. You know, it was a Monday morning. I'll never forget this day. It was a Monday morning. We had just gotten paid Friday, and I paid my bills, and we had $10 left. 
to our name. And when that lodged inside of me, it didn't matter how many zeros were on the end of that one. It could have been a million. It could have been no, no one in front of the zeros. It didn't matter because revelation dropped into my heart after hearing the word about prosperity for three or so years. And it was there forever. So, I li- and you, y'all know Anne of Green Gables, right? My daughter and I watched that at least twice a year when she was growing up. We used to like to watch it when we decorated the tree and stuff. And we watched it, of course, when Dennis was out of town. And um, it became our favorite movie. And I don't know, about maybe, maybe about 10 years ago, I was able to go to Halifax. And the pastors up there, we got on motorcycles and we drove all the way to Prince Edward Island so that we could see Anne of Green Gables stuff. Now, they had never been there, but they knew Americans were nuts about it. So they would always, when you know, guest ministers would come in, they'd take them. They'd never even seen the movie, didn't know anything about it. They didn't want to know. I tried to convince them. I, would, I said, let's watch the movie tonight. No, no, we don't want to do that. But this is what's so funny, is we watched this so much that I got there. We're driving in, and she, the pastor's wife said, you want to go to um, Lucy Maud Montgomery's house? I said, who is that? She said, she's the one that wrote Anne of Green Gables. I said, what? Oh, yeah, I want to go there. I was like, oh, my gosh, I believe she was real. I didn't realize it till just now. There's an author behind this whole story. <laughs> I never told them that. But I got home and said, Jessica, did you know <laughs> Lucy Maud Montgomery is? And she goes, yeah, Mom, she wrote Anne of Green Gables. I said, you guys are mean to me. I've been believing this girl's real all this time. Anyway, so I believed what Anne said. Anne, if you remember, was adopted by um, Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert. Marilla was a grouchy old lady and uh, had a heart. It just took a long time to see it. But um, there was a scene where I think Marilla was going to send Anne back to the orphanage or something. She was rude to the snootio neighbor. Um, And Matthew climbed up the stairs and went into um, Anne's room and kind of asked her to apologize and uh, to the snippety old neighbor. And so she agreed to do it because she realized for the first time somebody wanted her. Matthew wanted her. And so Matthew turns around to walk out of the room and he turns back and said, "Uh, don't tell Marilla we talked, all right? And she said, wild horses couldn't drag it out of me. And I'm like, that's where we need to be. When we read the word, we need to read beloved and wild horses can't drag it out of me. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what you say about me. It doesn't matter any circumstance outwardly. Wild horses couldn't drag it out of me because that's when you know it's gotten down in your heart. Circumstances don't make a bit of difference. Once it's in your heart and you can say wild horses can't drag it out of me then you know it's there but don't stop until you feel that way does that make sense thank you Anne (laughs) she is real if you believe (laughs) (laughs) all right where are we okay we talked about Moses and the spies Remember when they said, you know, we are grasshoppers in their 
their site. Um, now, this is the point with this whole thing, is it was their thinking and not the will of God that, de uh, that determined their destiny. It wasn't the will of God for them to die in the desert. The will of God was for them to live in the land of promise. Yes. Right? Yes. But it was their thinking that stopped them. So, if it's their thinking that stopped them from living in the promises of God, then it's our thinking that stops us from living in the promise of God. Just like I promised you when I open this up, I'm going to prove to you that we can do something about these tattoos and get rid of them because it's our thinking as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. But it's got to get in your heart. Romans 12, 2 said, Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let, the, uh, but let God remold you from within. That's what we're doing. We're putting the Word of God on the inside of us. We're not allowing the world to influence us. No way. Word of God on the inside of me is going to work its way out until it influences the world, not the other way around. So this isn't based upon how you feel. Let me tell you, there's going to be lots of days when you don't feel like doing this. And those are the days you need to do it more than normal when you don't feel like it. Because you have to break through those feelings. Those feelings are dominating you right now through those tattoos. I don't feel loved. I don't feel qualified. They're all about how you feel. So this has nothing to do with your feelings and you've got to realize that that this is I'm going to do this if I have to get up in the morning and go I'm loved of God he has accepted me I am favored because it's not about what I feel it's about what I do and what I say and once you start getting into that and saying it after a little while, those feelings will start to switch and you'll start to feel the truth instead of feeling grumpy. So let me ask you this question. Those of you who are married, what if in the morning you woke up and your husband said, I don't feel married today. <laughs> We'd all go, ha, ha, ha. Some of us would get the frying pan. Others would do like me and say, wait right here. And I'd go into my little file cabinet and I'd go A, B, C, D, M, M, marriage license and go back and say, guess what? You might not feel married, but I have a legal document buddy that says you're stuck. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> I have a legal document that tells him he is married. Feel like it or not. And so you have a legal document that tells you who you are, whether you feel like it or not. You've got to bust through these feelings because none of us feel like it most of the time. I don't feel like doing what the Word says. I feel like pulling the covers back over my head and staying here all day. Reading a novel. Watching Anna Green Gables. <laughs> But we got to get over our issues about feeling, right? If you want to get over the tattoos, do it. Just do it. Say, I'm going to, in 12 months, be rid of this. One thing. Pick the thing that you hate the most. Pick the thing that's restraining you the most. And then you find in the Word of God what it says about what you're dealing with, and you go after it like a bulldog. I used to have a Doberman pincher. Brownie and David, 
knew my Doberman. He thought he was a poodle. He was just not. People, I'd walk in and people would part at the park and I couldn't figure out why, cause, but he was a Doberman and they were afraid of him. He thought he was a poodle, so he wanted to, you know, anyway, Duke. We used to go out in the yard and play with Duke and we had this rope that we could play tug of war with. It was about this long and about that big around, big old knots on the end. And so we would walk out with this rope and his eyes would get big, his muscles would get tense, and it was to the death the moment we walked out. He was serious about this rope. And so he would grab one end and we would grab the other end and pull and pull and pull. And we could never ever do anything to get it out of his mouth. He would leave streak marks in the grass where his legs were like this and we'd be pulling up, no kidding, ruined our grass. So Dennis and I decided, we are smarter than this dog. So let's both get on the end of the rope and tug him. Well, we just went across the yard faster. <laughs> he wasn't gonna let go. He set his jaw in that rope and it was his. He wasn't gonna let go. And so we decided to play dirty. You can't win fair, let's cheat. So Dennis would get on one side pulling the rope and then I'd come up behind him. You know, he's focused on Dennis, his eyes are like steel looking at him. And I'd kind of get over his back and I'd put my fingers in his mouth and wedge his mouth trying to get it open. And he'd look at me and these eyes said, is that all you got? <laughs> and we lost. So then I said to Dennis, I've got the way to get this rope out of his mouth, you watch. He only weighed about 60 pounds, so this was easy to do. But I'd get this rope and start pulling him around the yard, and in a minute I'd go in circles. He'd go airborne. No kidding. The dog wouldn't let go of the rope. I thought if I lift him up off the ground, he's going to let go. I mean, wouldn't anybody be scared going airborne on the end of a rope? The dog went in circles holding onto the rope this far off the ground. And he taught me a lot that day. Never. Let go of the rope. You sink your teeth in and you say, the violent take it by force. <laughs> I am not letting go of it. I'm be free of this restraint. The tattoo has had an influence in my life for long enough. So I go to Duke and I sink my teeth and I'll even growl if I have to. <sighs> but I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. If I see it's a promise of God and I can have it, it's mine. Who's going to go down first? Well, I'm not going down, period. How long is it going to take the devil to give up? Doesn't matter to me. See, time is not an issue. Get rid of your thing, but it's going to take so long. Get over time. If God lives in eternity. He doesn't live in time. Doesn't mean anything to God. When you set yourself to do this, if you set yourself so that wild horses can't drag it out of you, in God's eyes, it's done. You're the one who may let go of it. But in God's eyes, it's a done thing. So time isn't the issue. Victory is the issue. So I don't care how long it takes. I want it to take five minutes like you do. But I really don't care how long it takes. Because I take it by force. <laughs> I'm just that, you know, I'm sure it has to do with my upbringing. <laughs> you had to be there. <laughs> and we took everything by force back then. Okay, so how do you do this? Meditation is the key to all of this. 
I've said over and over, you can't casually breeze in on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and think that you're going to get rid of these tattoos. You've got to do something. You've got to sink your teeth in and make a determination that you're going to have this and you're going to have it in 12 months because you do something, not the pastor. It's your life. You're responsible for it. He's got a calling to do something else that he does, not live your life. That's not his calling. We're responsible for our own lives, and we've depended too much on the ministry to do things for us, and that's why we don't have anything or very little. And so their job is something entirely different. It is not to change your life. It's not to come and speak to you every day. It's up to you to speak into your own life. And so meditation is the key here. The word meditation does not mean to clear your mind of everything, you know, Eastern religion kind of stuff, but it has three connotations in the Hebrew. The first thing it is, is to mutter, mutter. You know how to mutter? It's when you misplace your keys or your sunglasses and you're going, where did I put those things? Where did I last see those? What did I do with them? They were right in my hand. You know, muttering. <laughs> so you do stuff like that. I mutter when I go walking in the morning. My neighbors think I'm nuts and I really don't care. They don't have to live my life. I get to live it. So I walk around the neighborhood, I'm muttering constantly. When I've got a problem, when I've got an issue, when I'm facing a crisis, you will catch me out on that street walking. Sometimes, I usually walk like four miles. I, I don't like it, but I have to do it. So, But the reason I really like to do it is because I can hear from God so well when I'm out there walking. I don't know why. That and in my makeup chair. I always tell my husband, you want to hear from God? Sit in my makeup chair and start putting on my makeup. And he's like, mm. But see, I'm concentrating on something else entirely, and bam, the Holy Spirit will just lay out an answer to me. So easy. And so, when I'm walking, I'll be muttering the Word of God, whatever I'm dealing with, whatever issue, whatever question. I don't understand that, God. That really bugs me. Just be honest with Him and talk the way you talk, because He knows anyway. I'll say, that scripture's always bugged me. What does it mean? And I might not get it that day, but I'm telling you, I'll be walking, I'll get it might be a month later. It could be a year later. It just bugs me. I'm not really saying I got to know today. That bugs me. I don't get that. And he tells me. So when I'm out there with a crisis going, now, God, this doesn't make sense. You said this. I see this. What's the deal? And he will tell me. It's so fun. It's so fun. Meditation is muttering. So when we're trying to get rid of tattoos, we mutter. I am loved of God. He called me his beloved. He has seated me on the throne right next to him because I'm his favorite. And start saying the things that you've heard. Write them down. If you can't remember them, write them down. Put them on little pieces of paper so that it, when you forget, you can pull it out and cheat. You know? That doesn't matter. God doesn't care about that kind of cheating. He's, he's all for it. Muttering. You have so much time when you drive in the car. I never sit in the car without muttering. Never. It's a wasted time. When you're doing the dishes, when you're cooking, when you're walking, when you're shopping. I'm, I tell you what, I get in that grocery store, and if I've left my list at home, I say, Holy Spirit, we're here until you tell me everything that was on that list. <laughs> and I have waited and waited. I watch people... <laughs> walk by me and I'm like no I will go down an aisle and know there's something on this aisle that is on that list but Holy Spirit this is just practicing hearing from him I'm not leaving and then I'll get home chit, chit. Oh, 
I knew it. It was on that aisle, and I gave up. You know, and so I practice hearing from God, and I'm talking to him, muttering all the time. Uh, the, the, the second thing that um, meditation means is to ponder. You know what it means to ponder? It means to think about things. I am a thinker. I might not get stuff really quick, but I get it. Because I think about it all the time. And then I start asking questions. <laughs> ponder. That scripture bugs me, God. It's in there for a reason, but I don't get it. So why? Why would it be in there? So I start to ponder about my situation. I love to give this example because the church is so riddled with criticism and judgment over the prosperity message. And yet, 90% of the people I see complaining about it are broke. What's that about? They're jealous, they're angry, they're whatever, that they don't have any money, and those guys do. You know? Let me tell you about this. This is how you ponder. If I had all the money in the world accessible to me, money's not an issue. That's hard enough for you to imagine. Money is not an issue. I have access to all the money I need. What would I do with it? I'm pondering. What would I do with that money? I'd buy me a new car. I'd buy a new house. And I'd buy my mom a new house because she deserves it. I'd pay my daughter's house off. I'd pay her college. All of her kids. I'd set up a fund for all of her kids. I'd go on a cruise. Oh, I'd give the church some. Got that. Um, buy me a new ring, new clothes. Let's see, what else would I do with that? And we get to the point where you're running out of what you would do with it because you never think about what prosperity is really about. It's not about buying you a new car. God doesn't care if you have 50 new cars or five houses, one in every time zone. How many time zones are there? Three? <laughs> There's 11 in Russia, so... He does not care what you have. He really doesn't. You could have all the cars, all the clothes, all the houses, whatever. Not the purpose of prosperity. And so when our mental gears stop at, now what would I do with it? And we know we've hit a wall, a restraint, a tattoo that says, you'll never have it, so why think about it? But listen. Real prosperity is for you to bless others, to be a blessing to others. And you cannot do that when you have a payment mentality. Mm -hmm. well, I, I can afford this because it's only $19 a month, and I can afford that because it, you know, my job and, you know. But when you start to ponder about endless money, God, you said I could be wealthy and enjoy my wealth with good health. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm standing on that. I want good health, and I want the wealth, and I'm going to enjoy it. What I'm going to do with it is when that lady crosses the street from me, has her house being foreclosed, and she and her three kids are having to move out to the homeless shelter, I'm going to go over and say, what's the balance of that loan, did they say? And I'm going to write her a check. I'll write the mortgage company the check and give it to her and say, God loves you. 
and she will never forget about God, ever, never. And when the little boy at church can't afford to go, go to college because he doesn't have the money in his family, there's eight kids in the family and they're just putting food on the table, I can go up to him and say, now how much is your tuition? And he says, well, at Harvard it is 100000 is that what it is? 100000 but then there's living expenses and then there's books and stuff and say, here's the tuition for a semester. If you get good grades, come back and I'll pay for the next one. Here's your book allowance and here's some spending money. God loves you. Is he going to go off and get drunk at Harvard? He's going to get his best, very best grades. He's going to respect what God did for him, and he'll never forget about God. You see, God wants to do big things through us, not just get us three cars and two houses and new clothes and a cruise. You could do that every day of your life, and God wouldn't care. As long as you show others the goodness of God. That's what it's all about. Romans tells us that people repent and turn to God because of his goodness, not because of tragedy. That's what all religion tells us. Well, you know, God bring them down so low they can't do anything but look up. So I want to be a person who can pay somebody's tuition and let them know this is not about me, this is about God. The most exciting part about it is when you do it anonymously. Then it isn't about you. <laughs> it has nothing to do with you. Go to the pastor at the church and go, I want you to give this envelope to that lady over there because the Lord told me to give her some money, but do not tell her who gave it to her. And let him do it, and then you just keep your mouth shut <laughs> and enjoy it. Now that's pondering. That's taking the limits off and saying, I want that, God. I really want that. But as long as you keep thinking, I'll never have it, so why bother thinking about endless money? And you'll never have it. The last thing that meditation means is to chew like a cud. You know what cows do? Wander around the field, they eat up the grass and chew and chew and chew, and they swallow into the first stomach. And then later on, they regurgitate that and chew some more. I didn't say it was pleasant, I just said it was a definition. And they chew some more, they swallow it, they regurgitate it, they chew some more, swallow it, regurgitate it, and they do this over and over and over until every single nutrient is out of that stuff and then they swallow it for good. That's what we're supposed to do with the Word of God. We meditate on it and chew it and chew it. I get up in the morning and I see beloved and I'm chewing it. I get in the car talking about it, pondering, meditating, muttering. I get in my office and I have to swallow it because I have work to do. Be a good employee and swallow it. Don't cheat your employer. Swallow it because you can regurgitate it at lunch. And up it comes, and you can eat it and chew it and chew it. I'm beloved, I'm favored, I'm seated, I'm accepted, all the things that you've been chewing on. And when lunch is over, you swallow it, and you go back to work. And when you get back in your car, you regurgitate it. That is meditating the Word of God until you've got every nutrient out of what God gave you. And then you swallow it for good, and it's a part of your life. It's a part of your body. It's assimilated into your being. It's like the cow. Very good, right? Meditation, it's so easy. We usually do it already just the wrong way. With the wrong thoughts. You stupid thicky, why did you do that? You do that every time you come here. You 
blah, 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 blah. And that reinforces everything I just said. All right, so we're through. But I'm not stopping. <laughs> Do I have one more minute? I asked Kim what time we started, and she said I could go all day. She really didn't, but I can't lie when I'm behind the pulpit. I got one more thing. Is it okay? What now? I knew I liked her. Didn't know why yet, but I knew I did. <laughs> now I can pinpoint it. She lets me talk. <laughs> All right, one more thing that I think will be very valuable to you, but I, 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 or else I'd be quiet. This bugged me. This was one of those scriptures that I said to God, that bugs me. You got to tell me about that. I can't stand it until you do. I'm a woman. <laughs> I have to know. And so this this is going to be a little bridge here. We're going to take what you're going to think is a wrong turn, but it is not a wrong turn. It's an answer to a lot of what we're talking about here and a lot of what you've heard before, but in different terminology. So I read this scripture that Jesus said, among all born of women, there's none greater than the prophet, uh, none greater prophet than John the Baptist. That begged me because I thought Moses was I thought Elijah, Elijah, I mean, they all did these miracle things. Don't you think you can think of a lot of people that were greater than John the Baptist? Wearing weird clothes and eating weird food and being an outcast living in the desert. I mean, ah, it wasn't because he was Jesus' cousin either. Jesus doesn't lie. He doesn't exaggerate. He doesn't mince words. And so that bugged me. Tell me why, God, you said he was the greatest prophet. None born of a woman was greater than this man. Wow, doesn't that make you want to stop? See, we read through this stuff in our journey to get it done in a year, and we don't pay a bit of attention to what we're reading. You've got to get more inquisitive and stop, because there is a key there, something. So when I asked God that, he said, go back to Isaiah and read the prophecy that was prophesied about John the Baptist. So I went to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And it says, a voice crying in the wilderness, speaking of John, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight a highway for our God. Every valley will be filled, every mountain will be leveled, every crooked place will be straight, and the rough paths will be made smooth. So I sat there and thought, okay, clue. <laughs> Tell me, God, why did we read this? You know, what's the clue in here? And so I kept reading it over and over and over until finally I listened to what I was reading. Jesus said there was none greater, none, no prophet greater than John the Baptist, born of a woman, period, flat, not second runner-up. He was the greatest. And so when I read this description of John, what he did, we've heard it. He prepared the way of the Lord, made straight the paths. But I always ignored the first part of this. It said, John was a voice. And I realized what made John so powerful was his voice. He used his voice to prepare the way of the Lord, to make crooked places straight, to make rough places smooth. And that was the key to John's um, greatness is that he had a voice. Doesn't it tell us that he was crying in the wilderness, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord? Well, I realized that I had a voice too. And then I could be just as great as John. It doesn't say that nobody coming after John could be as good as him or as great or greater. It just said up till that point, he was the greatest. 
So if John had a voice, and he used the voice to do all of these different things, and I have a voice, then I can use my voice to prepare a way for the Lord to work in my life and in the lives of others. Then I can use my voice to make straight a highway for our God. Wow! Think about it. You know, God can't move in this earth without us. You cannot do it. He needs us. He needs our voice. Because, this is what God told me at that time, spiritual things, whether they're from the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness, spiritual things are voice activated. We have the principle in Genesis where God said, and it was. God said, it was. Isaiah said, nothing that you say will return to you void. We've got it over and over and over in the scripture talking about our voice being the tool that changes situations, whether it's for the good or not. So the word in our mouth is voice activated. We activate all of this stuff about tattoos and removing conditions by our mouth. I can prepare the ways of the Lord or I can inhibit it. I can either open that way or I can block it. It's up to me. It's the voice that I use, the words that I say. Now we've heard this preached for so many years. You have what you say. We become dull of hearing. Completely dull of hearing because listen to people. Just listen to them for five minutes and you'll know they don't do it. But if you preach it, they'll be like, I know, I know, yes, amen, I know. <laughs> and then you go outside and they talk trash about their own lives even. I mean, that's crazy. But if you realize the entire system is voice activated and you start to use the word of God in your voice, it will level those mountains that are standing before you that have restrained you. Sure is the sun comes up in the morning. It can't do anything else. It has to obey God's word. So when we get focused on this tattoo, this restraint is going in 12 months. What do you got to do? You've got to look into the word intently, right? You've got to get that, that scalpel of God's word that applies to that tattoo. And then you have to meditate it, ponder it. You have to um, mutter it and you have to chew it. And then you have to activate it with your own voice. Now, I learned something really long time ago. 42 years ago, I was praying for my family to be born again and to serve God. And so I told my mom that one of my sisters, thinking I was speaking in faith, my sister is saved. And she called her on the phone and asked her, well, she's still in saved 40 years later. <laughs> and my, and my, you know, I got in trouble because I didn't understand that I'm not trying to convince people. It has nothing to do with people. I'm working against the spirit of darkness. I don't have to say this in front of anybody. In fact, you're smarter not to. Shut your mouth around people because they're not going to understand what you're doing. Even if they're in this meeting. What you're doing is you're fighting that tattoo. You're fighting the conditioning, the restraints that have conditioned you all your life. You're fighting against the kingdom of darkness. And nobody needs to hear about that. So you do this in the privacy of your own home, in your car when you're alone or whatever. But you fight like that Doberman. Sink your teeth in and I don't let go. Forget about what everybody else thinks or says. 
You know, you can, let's just say you're dealing with healing. <clears throat> that you've had pronounced on you a chronic or a fatal disease, incurable, the doctor says, a tattoo that wants to permanently sink into your head. And you're dealing with that situation, to remove that tattoo. I've had this all my life. It's incurable. They said eventually it'll kill me or disable me or whatever. So you go to the Word of God and you get everything you can about healing. Now, it's not up to you to go tell everybody look, that I'm healed. They don't need to know anything. It's not people you're talking to. They will be confused. Now, you say, oh, but you don't want to say anything wrong. You're right. You don't want to do that. You don't want to give voice to the wrong thing. So I've learned that we can say a lot with nothing. <laughs> that we can turn things the way we want them to turn. You don't have to answer somebody's question just because they ask you guilt. No. If you ask me a question that you, I don't want you to know, you will never know. My daughter laughs at me because I, I've learned this years and years ago when we went into ministry and everybody thought they had a right to know everything about my private life. And I'm a very private person. And so my walls would do this. When people got around me, it was like, no. But then God began to teach me how to kind of play with people. Now you're going to know if I do this, I shouldn't tell you. <laughs> Don't be nosy. <laughs> so years ago, people would ask me questions that I didn't want to answer them. And so I would say, let's just say, have this happen. Did you wear a bikini when you went to Hawaii? And I went, did you look at this? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> would anybody wear a bikini looking like this? No, I didn't say that. I said, a bikini? Is that what they call them on the beach these days? It wasn't big as a bikini. I grew up in California. We wore bikinis. Now, they were wearing stuff I've never seen, but I've heard in other countries like Australia that they don't even have tops on their bathing suits, that they have topless beaches. But I haven't ever gone there, even though I go to Australia a lot. I've never been to a topless beach because I wouldn't want to. But you know what was really cool? When my daughter was two years old, we took her, to, or four years old, we took her with us to Australia, and it was the America's Cup race was running right then. So we went to Fremantle where they, they redid the whole town because of this race. It was like their big race. And of course, America won that race that year and they were mad at us when we were there. But we went there and we went to the beach and we took Jessica to the Indian Ocean. Now, is that not cool? I was in California. Is that not cool? I've only been to the Pacific Ocean, the Atlanta, but now we've been to the Indian Ocean. I love your shirt, but I gotta go. I am not going to answer your question. None of your business, but I don't wear a bikini. <laughs> Just so you can rest assured, my body is beyond that, beyond five years old, right? You don't have to answer questions just because they're asked. And you can have fun with it. My daughter looks at me, and when people ask me questions, she goes, where are we going? And I'm like, I don't know. She asked me, where are we going? Because we could go anywhere in the world. But we're not going to go to the answer to that question just because I don't want to answer it. None of your business. And it's a game for me. It's so much fun. It's like, oh, Holy Ghost, where, what are we going to do now? And then we just start talking, you know, and I always end up with a compliment. I love those shoes, but I got to go. 
And so I'm in control of my own life, and I don't feel violated by everybody that <laughs> where I go around the world, you know. Anyway, how did we get to that? <laughs> now you know if you ask me a question, I'll feel violated, right? No, that's not what I meant. Okay. The system is voice activated, and there's nobody that can do that for you except you. And so you've got to take the scriptures that you've intently and purposely found that deal with your issues, and you've got to work them. And you've got to be stubborn about it. And you've got to say, I will be free. Time's not an issue. Freedom is my issue. And I'm not going down. Somebody else is. And when you get that kind of attitude, look out, ladies. Because when I come back in 12 months or 14 years, <laughs> y'all will be different. Honest to goodness, I can promise you that if you will do it. Are you excited about it? Yes. I am. I'm ready to get home and go to work on some of my issues. We never not have issues. There's always something God's honing our lives on. Now stand up with me. Let me just pray for you real quickly. I've taken a lot of the morning. Y'all were supposed to say, but it was good. It was good. <laughs> All right, let me pray for you. The work really is in your hands. I can pray for you, but you've got to do it. So, Father, I thank you for each and every woman in this church. And in this meeting, Father, I pray in faith with them against every condition that's restrained them, every single tattoo that has been imprinted negatively upon their brain. Father, I pray that you work together with them as you promised you would, like the Holy Spirit does. He takes hold together with us against any weakness we have until we remove it. So, Father, I add my faith to theirs, and I believe that these women, if they will get a hold of your word and work it the way you've told us to work it, Father, they will be free in 12 months of the issue that they're dealing with, only to go on to the next issue and get freer and freer and freer until we're, we're just <laughs> boundless, literally boundless. So, Father, I thank you that your word is at work in us now. Revelation has come to us. Lord, that it lodges in each and every heart and that the enemy cannot remove it, will not remove it. So, Lord, we worship you and we thank you for this day and for what's been accomplished at this place and that it would only continue to grow. Amen. Amen. Amen.